Galatians 5:13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Isaac. So, uh, Pastor Thabiti Anuwable, he uh, tells a story of um, the great author Harriet Tubman. She escaped from slavery herself and made several trips back to Maryland to free about 60 to 70 other slaves. She sometimes found slaves so afraid to run the risk of running for freedom. What would happen so often is that they would start the road to freedom and then they would turn back out of fear. And she tells a story specifically of one man who wanted to turn back to the plantation when the escape was too difficult, too dangerous. And Harriet Tubman often carried a little revolver in her pocket just in case for protection. So in this one instance where this man wanted to go back, she takes out the revolver, points it at his head, and says, you go on to freedom or you die. A few days later, she, uh, this man arrives in Canada to freedom with everybody else. And if you'll allow me uh, the license of this metaphor, I think Galatians chapter 5 is sort of Paul's rhetorical revolver, you might say, pointed to the head of the church to say, you go on to freedom in Christ or you will die. There's nothing in between. You're either going to be free in Christ or you're not going to be free at all. You will be a slave for the rest of your life. I think we've seen that throughout Galatians. We've seen that especially in chapter 5. And so what I'd like to discuss today is this idea of what it means to truly be free. And we will never have true freedom unless we understand, know, and live in light of the gospel of Christ. And so we see this true freedom specifically in verses 13 through 15, where Paul provides three implications of this freedom. First is true freedom is not a slave of the flesh. And I think we see this in verse 13. And secondly is true freedom serves one another in love in verses 13 and 14. And then lastly, true freedom fights for the gospel, not one another in verse 15. So first is that true freedom is not a slave of the flesh. Freedom is not what most of the world believes it to be. When you were to go up to someone and talk about the question of, are you free in your will? Most people have the idea that freedom of the will is the idea to do whatever you want, whenever you want, without any preconditions. But what Paul says in Galatians, when he says in this verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, he doesn't have that freedom in mind because in actuality, that's not real freedom at all because there's no such thing. Paul wants true freedom for the church, but to get to that true freedom, you have to understand what is freedom. And I appreciate the way theologian Jonathan Edwards describes this freedom. 
And let me sort of use a, a parallel point to illustrate what he discusses when he describes freedom. Suppose you're on a diet and you really want to lose some weight. You want to be healthier. So on the first day of your diet, you open your refrigerator and there are two items in your refrigerator. There is a candy bar and there's a piece of celery. And you say, I'm on this diet. I'm definitely eating that celery. So you reach in to the uh, refrigerator and you pull out that candy bar. And as you're pulling out, you say, I am definitely on this diet. I'm eating healthy. I'm not going to break my diet. And you take a bite out of that candy bar and you say, I'm, I definitely am on this diet. I'm holding it. I'm maintaining it. Now, here's the question. What is the will really doing? Is the will on a diet or is the will deciding to do what it wants and eating the candy bar? I think all of us would agree that to eat the candy bar and to choose that shows that no matter what a person says, no matter how strong their will is, that their greater will is actually to act upon whatever they're doing is what is their greatest will. And so Edwards's point was that you will always act upon your greatest desire, no matter what you say your greatest desire is. You can say, my desire is to follow Christ. But if you choose to do anything but follow Christ, then it really doesn't matter what you say. It's what you do that shows what is your greatest will and desire. For us to choose otherwise would be insanity. In other words, there's pretty much no way you can actually say, believe, do one thing, but actually act upon something else. So what he's saying is that no one is truly free when we think about freedom. Because in actuality, there's always a disposition. There is always something that causes us ultimately. There's something that Paul uses this word in, Galatians, uh, in Romans chapter 6. He says, everybody's a slave. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. But you're not free from all things. It's just not possible. And we are all naturally, because of sin, inclined to do everything apart from God. That is to say, we are created in God's image, but once sin entered into the world, from that point forward, our natural inclination is to rebel against God, to turn away from him. And in that sense, we're not actually free. Do you know that you are not free to worship him on your own, by your flesh, by your nature. You can't obey him. You can't follow him. You can't love him. You're not free to do so. You're enslaved by your sin to actually not do any of those things. And Paul makes this so clear in this statement in Romans chapter 8, verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Very clear statement. When you are inclined by sin to turn away from God, you can never please him. It doesn't matter the works that you do. Your ultimate heart is your greatest desire, and that is actually ultimately rebelling against him. But when the Lord, by his spirit sovereignly, breaks through your hardened heart and actually tears open your will, 
John Calvin described it and Calvinists described it in, in a way in which we say that his grace is irresistible, meaning that even though you have a will, God by his spirit can break through that and he can change your inclination. He can actually cause you to now want to obey him, to want to desire him, to want to love him and to worship him. But apart from that inbreaking, apart from God literally taking what your natural inclination is and literally breaking through that wall and turning you towards him, there's no way you will ever follow him. So when God does that by his spirit, we're now free to love him. We were never free to love him before. We we're enslaved by our sin, but now we're free to love him. We're free to obey him. We're free to worship him. With that in mind, let's look at verse 13, because that has to be sort of the, um, the backdrop upon which we understand verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. True freedom does not go back to the slavery of the flesh. That's what Paul's saying. We have been freed to worship Jesus in faith. So why would we ever want to take license to sin? Paul's gone to such great lengths, and I believe a couple of weeks ago, Eddie spoke about it. You know, this idea of the legalism of circumcision. It's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought was how we become righteous before God is by acts of obedience based on our strength, will, power. And by that, we become righteous as God's people. As Paul has written about, as Jesus has shown, that's actually not a road to life. That's a road to death. It robs us of the power of the gospel. Because if really we could achieve righteousness by obedience to the law, then why did Jesus have to die at all? Why the cross? What, what was the cross all about? It negates the cross. So we are set free through the atoning work of Christ. And then it's easy then to think, oh, wow, if I'm free from the law, I guess it means I can push the boundaries of sin. Like, if you've ever heard the question of what, what is the most I can do without being punished? You know, if you ask that question, you're really not understanding grace. Imagine a child saying to you, a parent, mom, dad, can you tell me what is the most I can get away with without actually being punished? Like, what's the line? And I want to get as close as I can to that line without actually being punished. How would you as a parent think about that question? I mean, you would find it to be a little absurd. You would be troubled by that question because you're in your mind, they're, they're, actually, they're actually obeying the rules. But their hearts are showing they're not obeying the rules. They're not getting it. And eventually you know, as we all do, that line is crossed over so quickly, so easily, so readily. Well, in many ways, what Paul is confronting is a people who are saying, what can I get away with? What's the minimum amount that God expects from me so that I can just pass? I find the grading, the grading system in schools very interesting. You know, uh, different colleges have different 
uh, grading systems, high schools too, but colleges, maybe because two of my kids are in colleges, and they have different grading systems. Some have pluses and minuses, and some have straight A, B, C, D. And so you have 100 to 90 for A, and 89 through, you know, say, 80, B, and so forth and so on. But then if you have pluses and minuses, 100 to 93, you know, and 92 to, is, so that you have this whole measured system. And if we're always thinking, what is the minimum amount I can get to get an A? You know, if I could just get a 90, but I don't want a 93 in a plus minus system because I'm going to get an A minus and that doesn't look as good. So we're trying to game the system. I don't want to do a lot of work. I want to do just enough to look really smart. Isn't that what we do with God? It's what Paul is warning against. He's saying, if you are thinking on t- in the terms of what can I do to look just good enough for God, then you've misunderstood grace. Then Christ died in vain for you. It's interesting how those who get the gospel, meaning they understand that they've been a sinner, saved by grace, those people, what I have found is that those who are so struck by their sinfulness and then awestruck by God's kindness and mercy are the ones who always are thinking, I want to grow, I want to change. And they never see, or at least... They, they do, we all, all sin in that way, but there's always a desire to come back. But rarely is it that person who will be thinking, how can I get away with this? Or ask the question, wait a second, doesn't grace then allow me to sin as much as I want? Usually it's the person who doesn't get grace, who doesn't understand it, who's always asking, well, then what, what, do I need to do anything? Or, so those questions of trying to live by just the margins of being able to just make it and just squeak by, Paul's addressing that point and saying, wow, you're really missing the gospel. Freedom from the law is wrongly equated to be freedom to sin or at least freedom to almost sin. If I'm free from the law, I, I, can, I want to be able to almost be drunk. You know, like, I want to be buzzed to a point where I'm just, but I'm not really drunk. And anyone who drinks knows that everyone has, well, this is my tolerance. I'm a really high tolerant person, so I'm not really drunk. I'm almost drunk, so I'm not really sinning. I'm actually still okay. I think you, you get it. The questions of, well, can I smoke marijuana? The, all so many different ways in which we try to walk that line and say, I don't want to um, say I'm a legalist, but I also want to experience the license of it all. How close can we get sexually? You know, the temptations of it in a dating relationship. And there are so many boundary issues that deal with this question that Paul's saying, you're missing the point. If you think it's always about trying to just get by almost sinning, but not really sinning, then you're still constrained and enslaved by the flesh. There's no difference. Let me illustrate this one more time. Think of a 16-year-old. 
they pass the written test, and then they pass the driver's test. Is there any person more dangerous in the world than a 16-year-old who has their driver's license, who just got their driver's license, the most dangerous person in all the world? Well, here's the thing. They have a license from the state of California. It says, license to drive. So they shout and holler and say, yeah, I have a license to drive how I want, when I want, in the way that I want. And so what do they do? They ignore the laws of the road. They drink and drive. They text while driving. That license is no longer a license to drive. It's a license to die. We are not given our freedom to follow Jesus so that we can have a license to sin. A license to sin is a license to die. And that freedom is no freedom at all. That's slavery. True freedom also serves one another in love. And we see this in verses 13 and 14. I love what Paul says here about true freedom in this way. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The word that Paul uses to describe serving is the same as slavery, doulos. You know, it's... And it's more than serving, because I think in our context, serving means bringing someone a glass of water. But in this context, it's so much more. It's actually submitting yourself to, willfully, in your own desire. The word is essentially be a slave to one another in love. One commentator describes Paul's words here as a shocking paradox. Because he's saying that true freedom is the freedom to be a slave, to love others. That's what true freedom is. Another commentator, Thomas Schreiner, he says, he puts it this way, true freedom liberates believers from their selfish will so that they find joy in serving others. The slavery of our self-centeredness keeps us from actually finding joy in loving others. And so when we are free, we serve, we are enslaved to love. And you see, someone who doesn't have true freedom cannot truly enslave themselves to love one another. Instead, they are enslaved to themselves. And Paul, he tells us that, he, that the Spirit gives us power upon which we can truly, freely do this. When Jesus tells his disciples that the law is summed up in two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, he's telling his disciples that the law does have a right, ultimate God-honoring purpose. But we must have the God-intended purpose of that law in mind. I really appreciated the way um, Carlin last week, he was talking about the paralytic man healed on the Sabbath. I mean, he'd been lame for over three decades. When Jesus heals him, the Pharisees only saw that Jesus broke the Sabbath. This man broke the Sabbath. They weren't amazed by the miracle. They're not stunned by the fact that this man who couldn't walk for three decades suddenly starts walking. They couldn't see that God actually had compassion for this man. All they saw was the law. 
their law that they determined how it should be followed. And what were they ultimately? They were enslaved by their self-righteousness. And therefore, because of their self-righteousness, they couldn't obey the law rightly. True freedom enslaves oneself to love others. We're self-constrained from our own self, and we desire to be constrained by love. And how does this happen? It's when we actually, again, as Edwards notes, um, when we decide to put the happiness of another above our own so that their happiness is only our true happiness. Now, obviously, it really depends on what that happiness is. It's not, well, if this person wants to become a drug addict, we just supply all their drugs. But if it is a God-honoring happiness or just to in some way find true delight and joy, if I can have a desire to want to make them even happier and greater, and my pursuit is to do that, not as an idolatrous way, not enslaving myself to that person, but out of a love for them, then to find that person increase in joy is what increases my love and delight. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, is it really this way? Your only happiness is found this way? The answer is yes. Otherwise, we'll always be enslaved by our own self-centeredness. And then we can't truly love. Because the problem with a will not enslaved to love is that it's enslaved to the self. There's only one of two options. You're either enslaved to love, God and others, or you're enslaved to yourself. And this always shows itself to be the case. C.S. Lewis says this, if you do someone a kindness to show him or others or yourself what a fine chap you are to put him in your debt, and then to sit down and wait for his gratitude, you'll be very disappointed. All natural affections are idolatrous and need to be purified. If you are always thinking, okay, if I do something for somebody, they need to show me gratitude, then you're never going to be happy and you're not going to understand love. I remember earlier on in our marriage, um, and I've shared this story numbers of times with different groups, but it, it just I just remember the thinking, so it always comes to my mind is, um, uh, I hate washing dishes. I was an absolute self-centered, um, my spoiled little child, and my mom did everything for me. She always washed the dishes, and she always folded my laundry and did everything. I know, I know you're th what you're thinking. You spoiled brat. Yes, I was, admit it. Well, I remember when I was first married and, um, you know, as I should rightly help as much as I can, do whatever I can. And one of the things that my wife asked me to do is to wash the dishes. And as I was washing the dishes, the only thought that came to my mind was, Okay, you owe me. You, you, like, I started numbering. And, okay, if I do the dishes this many times, and she has to do this, and she has to respond this way, and the more things that I had to do, the more things that she needed to respond to and e equal that. 
and also, there's also this feeling of, well, if I decide to do this willfully, then I'm noble and I'm a really great husband. There's no husband like me. And that's another problem with being in this state is you start comparing yourself. Okay, I know this man and this man, this man. I do a lot more than him. And so my wife has to better appreciate that I'm actually better than all these other husbands. And if you, it, it's, it's this rabbit trail of utter egotism and self-centeredness and sin. And so once I start calculating, that's not love, that's called accounting debits and credits, once we start going down that road, there's a reason why Paul says love keeps no record of wrongs. And because love is not an accounting formula. It is meant to be a means by which I reflect the love that I've received. And so if I don't do that, that's not love. That's self-love. And self-love on its own Merit is idolatrous. It's a worship of the self. And so in this case, whether it's marriage or friendships or other church members, when we show some sort of kindness to somebody and then there's in our hearts an expectation of gratitude, of repayment, oh, you better say thank you to me. I better get a thank you card in the mail written, handwritten by you. And it should be the drawing, there should be a little nice little drawing as well. Or if I go to a wedding and I give $100 to your child, I expect that $100 back to me, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I'm counting, there's a little book that shows, oh, this person gave this, this because I want all those things back when I have someone who gets married in my family. And that repayment attitude Gratitude is not love. See, notice the word gratitude. It has the Latin word gratis in it, which means grace. And grace is unmerited favor. It's from the heart. It means you don't expect anything in return. It's just given because that giver is kind, is gracious. And there's no sense of, well, you better pay me back. The moment we expect gratitude, from another person because of our kindness is the moment that we're not kind, we're idolatrous. And rather, if we become sullen and angry and record-keeping, well, and then you think, I'm never going to show them kindness again. You invite someone over for dinner, they come, and they don't bring anything over for you, they don't say thank you. They don't say, wow, your meal is really delicious. They just eat, slurp it all up, and say, all right, take care, have, have a good week. And you think to yourself, I'm never inviting them over again. That's not hospitality. That's self-worship. That's not kindness. That's idolatry. Now, I know that sounds very strong, but I'm saying this because know your heart. Know my heart. My heart is always wanting payback, repayment. That's not love. That's accounting. We love not because we have something in us to love one another, 
We love because someone else has loved us. Someone else has been enslaved even unto death for us. And we can never, ever pay that debt back again. And he knows it. And he's not even looking for it. Do you see, if that doesn't flow out of our hearts, then we're always going to be measuring what are we going to get out of this. We become utilitarian in every way. John says this in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The triune God loved us by submitting himself to the cross. And there is no one happier to do so than him. No one who's more joyous. Out of the greatest sorrow comes the greatest joy. What keeps us from experiencing the fullest of happiness and joy is this self-centeredness rather than love. If we open our homes and are hospitable because we've been loved, and even if we should not receive gratitude, we are still so thankful and overflowing with joy and happiness. Envy, it just covetousness, it destroys our souls. How can it ever be different from us if we're not experiencing the grace of God over and over again? If you're frustrated or angry with one another, perhaps you're loving someone ultimately by your own flesh, and you'll see that you can't love that way. Lastly, true freedom fights for the gospel, not one another, verse 15. You can see when we enslave ourselves then and we willfully submit ourselves in love to one another, we grow together. We are stronger together. We become united together. And we ward off fighting and hurting one another, exactly what Paul warns against in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, we are free, but we're free to actually love God and love one another. That's what we're free for. That's what our will has been free. Before that, we couldn't. We could never love God, and we really couldn't love in this way. When we are bound by sin, we're bound by envy, self-centeredness, jealousy, self-righteousness. We can't help ourselves. It's just part of us. I mean, there's a battle that's raging. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. You know, they're battling. At least there's a battle. For the believer, there's a battle. For someone who doesn't know Christ, there's no battle. We're always going to act upon our own self-inclinations. So we can't help ourselves. We gossip and judge and criticize and fail to show grace because sin has, as God has warned Cain, Sin is crouching at the door. If you ever watch like a suspense movie or a horror movie, and you know there's something behind the door. There's something behind. Don't open the door. Don't open the door. Open the door, and there is something. Well, God is giving the advance warning to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. When we're in Christ, when the gospel rules over us, enslaves us to love, you can fight. You can battle the desire for vengeance. 
and gossip and jealousy and anger against one another. But without the Spirit, we're enslaved by it. It just takes over. And anyone who has experienced, whether it's road rage or customer service rage or you know spousal rage or sibling rage or parental rage, you know when you're in the midst of it, it is so hard. You feel like a slave because you are being enslaved. But when we are in Christ, you can break free from that. And unless we rule over this, we will, as Paul says, bite and devour one another. The very existence of the church is at stake when we don't fight this, when we don't love in this way. If you ever watched uh, sort of those animal shows, those especially in Africa, there's wildebeest, a herd of wildebeest. And when two males are trying to mate with a female, there's there's literally a fight. They can't control themselves. So two males are just tearing each other apart, wounding each other. And they're beasts. They can't help themselves. They're just, their physical bodies are taking over and controlling them. And so they fight each other to the point where perhaps one is severely weakened and is limping away. What happens next? If you can imagine, suddenly a pride of lions comes out of the bushes and they see that limping wildebeest and they all start jumping on him and tearing in. They don't go after the herd. They go after the one wounded one. How was he wounded? Because he couldn't control himself with the other, because they're fighting and because they're limping away. And when they are not together, they're defenseless. Paul knows that the more we as a church are enslaved, not by our love for one another, but by our self-centered sinful hearts, the more we're susceptible to our own destruction. And our refusal to see the gospel as the means by which we control and battle and fight against our sinful desires is what will destroy the church. Paul says, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You know, these past two years has been a terrible year, not for this world, but for the church. It's been a terrible year in the sense that it's been a year of all sorts of tertiary issues coming into the church to bite and devour one another, from politics of, of an election to COVID and its different stances and, and all the different implications of that. And it's really tested the, the unity of the church. When we gather, when you come, you will be challenged. Your challenge will be, will I place above all else unity in Christ or will all the tertiary issues come together? I mean, we have enough problems apart from politics and COVID. Our problems are, I don't like the way we sing way too many contemporary songs. We sing way too many hymns. Why does the band sound this? I know I'm picking on the band. You know, why, why this? Why this color of the, of the chairs? You know, what, who designed this? And, and the list is endless. 
there are enough problems, enough reasons why we are tempted to not love one another. Instead, we're focused on all of these secondary, tertiary issues that causes us instead not to fight for and to be enslaved by love, but rather to be enslaved by self-righteousness. I believe this is right. And so if it isn't done my way, then it's wrong. And someone needs to change. Someone else has to pay. True freedom is the freedom to decide, I'm not going to fight one another. I'm going to love. And slavery is when you can't help but actually be angry, irritated, frustrated, worried. When you're enslaved to that, you're not free. Not at all. True freedom is to fight to love others through the gospel. And despite differences, despite different opinions and points of view, you say, I'm going to enslave myself to love. I will willfully submit to love above even my own willful desires, even personalities and backgrounds and different places of understanding, worldviews. I'm going to fight this and I'm going to love. We must do this. So Paul says, you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom. You're free to love. You were called as sons and daughters. And there's no freer place than to know that your Savior was enslaved. He was bound on a tree. He gave up his rights. He emptied himself, as Paul says in Philippians 2. He's made himself nothing. He became a a slave unto death so that you and I would be forever free to love him. How could we ever turn away from this gracious God by deciding not to love one another. When we gather, may we be enslaved to love. And in doing so, may we experience true freedom. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that our tendencies are to be counters, to be record keepers of rights and wrongs, rights and wrongs that are not right or wrong in your accounting, but in our own hearts. There's a deep self-centeredness in each one of us that has enslaved us to sin. But by the power of your spirit, breaking through our darkness, our brokenness, our hard-heartedness, you've turned the heart of stone, given it a heart of flesh, and now we are able to love you to obey you, to love one another, to submit ourselves to love for one another. Lord, we, each one of us here, we have our own way of doing things. We live in our own rooms, organizing it in the way that we desire to organize it, believing that this is the right way. But help us to see, O oh Lord, to, that you chose to be enslaved. You chose to be obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we might be free. Help us, O Lord, then to come and experience that freedom ourselves by loving as you love. While we were still sinners, Jesus, you died for us. You loved us with an everlasting love. You've drawn us with loving kindness. May we now do so the same for others. We pray this in Jesus' name.